0: Welcome to the Monash University Perioperative Medicine podcast series. My name is Dr. Olivia Lay and I'd like to welcome two experts today to discuss the perioperative implications of buprenorphine. Dr. Harry Sivakumar is a dual-trained consultant anaesthetist and pain specialist at the Alfred Hospital, and Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones is an addiction medicine specialist at the Alfred Hospital and an honorary senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne. Thank you both for joining me today. Harry, if we could focus on the use of buprenorphine in the context of pain first? What is buprenorphine and what makes it unique?
1: Thanks, Olivia. Well, buprenorphine is an opioid medication. What makes it unique is the way that it interacts with the opioid receptors. Buprenorphine is a partial or a weaker agonist at the mu receptor compared to other stronger opioids, but it has a very high affinity for the mu receptor, meaning that it is very good at seeking out and attaching itself to mu receptors.
0: So when would buprenorphine be used preferentially to other opioids?
1: Uh, well, buprenorphine is used in acute pain, in chronic pain, and also in addiction medicine to help patients with heroin misuse issues. Um, in acute pain, we primarily use it in the immediate release sublingual formulation, uh, which is trade name Temgesic in Australia. And this comes in a 400 microgram or 0. 0.4 milligram tablet. In chronic pain, we primarily use it in the skin patch formulation, which is uh, which is called NorSpan. And in addiction medicine, we primarily, we primarily use it in the sublingual buprenorphine combined with naloxone formulation, which is called suboxone, which comes in either two milligram or eight milligram films. The film formulation is intended to make the dosing of buprenorphine easier to supervise as it becomes adherent to the oral mucosa and rapidly dissolves and thus is more monitoring, uh, monitorable. Uh, the naloxone is added to dissuade intravenous misuse of the drug.
0: So diversion of the drug. Exactly. Yep. I've noticed that buprenorphine um, has become much more commonly used in perioperative pain management over the past five years in particular. What are some of the advantages of buprenorphine?
1: Well, you're absolutely right. The, the acute pain service at the Alfred now uses buprenorphine as one of our preferred opioid analgesic medications. In terms of advantages, I'd like to focus on three. Firstly, as we discussed earlier, buprenorphine is a partial agonist at the mu receptor, which is the receptor most implicated in both analgesia and also respiratory depression. Trials in healthy volunteers have suggested that buprenorphine has a ceiling effect on respiratory depression, meaning that initial doses of buprenorphine do cause dose-dependent respiratory depression, but that after a certain point, say 16 milligrams, giving more buprenorphine does not necessarily cause more respiratory depression. This characteristic is unique to buprenorphine However, I must stress that this finding is in healthy volunteers not taking any other sedating medication. So one must be wary of generalizing to the perioperative period when patients are often exposed to multiple sedating drugs such as general anesthetic drugs and gabapentinoids and they may not be a healthy volunteer. Nonetheless, this characteristic is appealing, especially in at-risk patients such as obese patients or elderly patients. The other thing to note is that whilst there may be a ceiling effect on respiratory depression, the current opinion is that there is no ceiling effect on analgesia in the doses that we use in perioperative acute medicine, which is usually less than two milligrams. So giving more of the drug should lead to more pain relief. The second advantage is that buprenorphine causes less constipation than other opioid medications. And given that it can also be taken sublingually, i.e. it can be taken in those who are new by mouth, this makes it an especially attractive option following gastrointestinal surgery. The third advantage is that buprenorphine is a preferred choice in renal dysfunction. It is metabolised by the liver and is not reliant on the kidney for clearance. Incidentally, buprenorphine is also fully dialysed in both peritoneal dialysis and hemodialysis, making it a preferred choice in the dialysis cohort of patients.
0: So it sounds like it has some ideal properties for us in acute pain. What are some of the disadvantages of buprenorphine?
1: Uh, The main one, ironically, is the risk of difficult to treat respiratory depression. As we said earlier, the risk of respiratory depression is reduced with buprenorphine. But if it does occur, for example, in a patient, elderly patient post-general anaesthetic, it can be more difficult to treat. Because as we discussed earlier, buprenorphine has a very high affinity for the mu receptor, meaning that it is hard to displace from the mu receptor. Higher than usual doses of naloxone will be required in this situation, and a longer than usual duration of naloxone infusion will be required as well. There are a few other practical disadvantages with buprenorphine. Uh, Sublingual buprenorphine is administered under the tongue, which can be tricky for some patients, especially cognitively impaired patients. The way to administer sublingual buprenorphine is to first wet the mouth, then to place the tablet or film under the tongue for up to 10 minutes, and to not swallow your saliva for these 10 minutes. We want the drug to be absorbed under the tongue. This is important because the sublingual bioavailability of buprenorphine is 33%, whereas the oral bioavailability is 5 to 10%. So getting administration wrong can lead to drug failure. The other thing is that sublingual buprenorphine, when used for acute pain, is not financially supported by the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme. So outpatient use is via private script, which costs roughly 75 cents per tablet. The other thing also is that the long-acting skin patch formulation of buprenorphine, which is the NorSpan product, has suboptimal kinetics for acute pain. When the first NorSpan patch is applied in the course of treatment, it takes 24 hours to reach some sort of meaningful clinical effect, and it takes three days to reach a peak clinical effect. As you can guess, this kinetic profile is not workable for perioperative acute pain management.
0: So how can we utilise uh, buprenorphine in acute pain and still fit within the ANSica College recommendations?
1: Yeah, so in line with the ANSCA College recommendations, our current practice for perioperative acute pain management is to principally use immediate release opioids on a PRN basis for individualised tailored dosing. And thus, for acute pain management, we principally use PRN, sublingual buprenorphine. Let's begin by reviewing the pharmacokinetics of sublingual buprenorphine. The onset time is 30 to 60 minutes, the peak clinical effect is one to four hours, and the duration of action is six to 12 hours. The typical starting dose is 200 to 400 micrograms, eight hourly PRN. A common question that I get is, how does the 400 microgram dose of sublingual buprenorphine compared to the more familiar alternative immediate release opioid medication, which is Endone? As per the Faculty of Pain Medicine opioid calculator, One tablet of Temgesic, which is 400 micrograms, is roughly equivalent to one tablet of Endone, which is 10 milligrams.
0: Are there situations in which you'd be wary of using buprenorphine then for acute pain management? Uh,
1: Yes. Um, For patients who come to theatre with a background of chronic pain being long-term managed with high doses of full-strength mu agonist opioid medications, such as morphine, oxycodone, fentanyl, hydromorphone. I would be wary of using PRN-buprenorphine for their acute pain management. As we discussed earlier, buprenorphine has a very high affinity for the mu receptor, meaning that it is very good at seeking out and attaching itself to mu receptors. If a decent amount of sublingual buprenorphine, say 2 milligrams, is used in a short period of time in these patients, it may sufficiently displace the patient's long-term opioid medication from, op- from mu receptors and remembering that buprenorphine is a partial or weak agonist at these receptors. This may tip the patient into opiate withdrawal and probably a pain crisis.
0: I've noticed that intravenous buprenorphine uh, has become more readily available interoperatively. Would you consider using it, Harry?
1: So I I personally do not use intravenous buprenorphine in the operating theatre, but some of my colleagues do. One of the things that they tell me is that spontaneous ventilation and respiratory rate are far less depressed by good doses of buprenorphine under general anaesthesia than by good doses of fentanyl or oxycodone or morphine under general anaesthesia. Incidentally, our acute pain service does facilitate the use of intravenous buprenorphine for post-operative pain management by way of a PCA or patient-controlled analgesic device. The dosing regime at the Alfred Hospital is 30 micrograms, 10-minute lockout PRN.
0: And so I'll open this question up to both Martin uh, and Harry. How would you manage acute post-operative pain in a patient who has come to you on suboxone for opioid replacement therapy?
1: Well, uh, the first thing to say is that this is a difficult situation and despite all of your best planning, things may not always go to plan. The second thing I want to provide is some rough guidance of dosing of sublingual buprenorphine when used in opioid replacement therapy for patients with a heroin heroin misuse issue. The dosing is usually somewhere between 12 and 32 milligrams per day of the trade name drug Suboxone. As we discussed earlier, buprenorphine has a very high affinity for the mu receptor, meaning that it is very good at seeking out and attaching itself to mu receptors. And it can be very hard for other opioid medications to find their way to mu receptors to to achieve the analgesic effect. As a guide, at Suboxone 2 milligrams, roughly 40% of mu receptors are occupied. At suboxone, 16 milligrams, roughly 80% of mu receptors are occupied. When faced with a patient on suboxone who will be coming for surgery in the future, there are two schools of thought to either continue the suboxone through the perioperative period or to come off the suboxone preoperatively prior to surgery. My personal philosophy is to continue the suboxone through the perioperative period. The main reason for this is that the patient is hopefully controlled for a substance misuse, misuse issue, which I wouldn't want to jeopardise by coming off the suboxone. My approach to these patients is to begin by making sure that the patient takes their usual suboxone on the morning of surgery. Ideally, I do a preoperative regional nerve block, which if successful means that I'm not expecting a high degree of new postoperative pain as the patient wakes up following surgery. Regarding intraoperative opioid, I generally use intravenous oxycodone, fully understanding that the clinical effect of this drug will be markedly diminished because the patient's mu receptors being otherwise occupied by buprenorphine. Some of my other colleagues use intravenous methadone. Regardless of the opioid choice, multimodal analgesia is critical, including considering more advanced options such as ketamine, especially if a regional block was not possible. Postoperatively, I continue the patient's baseline suboxone, but divide it over two to three doses per day. This is important to prevent withdrawal, and BD or TDS dosing will allow the drug to remain in the therapeutic analgesic window for more of the day. Otherwise, I prescribe multimodal analgesia, and for PRN breakthrough, I use intravenous intravenous or oral oxycodone, usually at higher than normal doses. An alternative option for breakthrough pain is additional PRN suboxone, which is usually one-sixth of the patient's total daily dose. So for example, a patient usually on suboxone 24 milligrams daily may be additionally prescribed suboxone 4 milligrams, 6-hourly PRN for breakthrough pain.
2: So, Harry, you have given a very comprehensive reply, and there's not a lot for me to say. I think the critical thing is if one has time, it's worth talking to the patient about what the options are and reassuring them that they will be given uh, as good pain relief as is possible. And also asking them what their preference is, because sometimes patients will be very reluctant to relinquish their um, suboxone which they find very helpful and stabilizing uh, and might be very concerned about going on to a pure mu agonist, but at the same time, depending on the sort of surgery being undertaken, there may be a rationale for doing that. In most cases, we advocate patients are left on the OAT of their choice, whether it's methadone or buprenorphine, buprenorphine in this case, and that other analgesia is added in on top of that. But as you mentioned, and as we'll come to later, when we're talking about long-acting buprenorphine preparations, that can be complex.
0: The dosing of the opioid replacement therapy dosages of buprenorphine seems quite complex. Is there any benefit trying to convert it into an oral morphine equivalent as we normally would with other opioids?
1: That's a great question, Olivia. So as you allude to, it's common practice in anaesthesia and preoperative medicine to convert a patient's baseline opioids, whatever they are, to the standard unit, which is oral morphine equivalents, to help get a rough idea of the patient's baseline opioid consumption. And this will help us to try and estimate the patient's post-operative opioid requirements. In my opinion, conversion from very high doses of buprenorphine, as is used in opioid replacement therapy with Suboxone, to the standard unit oral morphine equivalent is difficult to meaningfully interpret. As an example, the Faculty of Pain Medicine Opioid Calculator calculates that Suboxone 32 milligrams daily is equivalent to oral morphine 1,300 milligrams or to endo 900 milligrams. I'm not sure how to clinically interpret this information. So I think with high doses of buprenorphine, the the opioid conversions are clinically not helpful.
0: So overall, it would probably be better to contact either the acute pain team service at our hospital or the addiction medicine specialist for further input. Is that what you would also recommend, Martin?
2: I think so. And I think also there's the DACA service, which it's important to remember covers statewide cover every day of the year uh, to provide that sort of advice. But critically with buprenorphine, the thing to remember is that it's got a long half-life. So a single dose of buprenorphine, when it's been given repetitively, uh, will have some effect lasting up to 72 hours after dosing. So calculating morphine equivalence is really sort of meaningless in this context because there will be still antagonism at the receptor that persists for 24, 48, 72 hours post last dose.
0: So how is buprenorphine used in chronic pain management?
2: Uh, So the use of opioid
1: medication in chronic non-cancer pain is controversial, as you know, especially in light of the opioid epidemic over the past 20 years. The evidence base for opioid medication in chronic non-cancer pain is mixed, but multiple studies have demonstrated limited to no long-term benefit from opioids in chronic non-cancer pain and also a noteworthy risk of misadventure and problems. Having said that, in the real world, there may be some nuanced situations in which a trial of opioid medications if chronic non-cancer pain may be of merit, taking into account such things as the patient's underlying cause of the pain, as well as the patient's risk of misuse or aberrant behaviors. If it is determined that a trial of opioid medications is meritorious, my preferred agent is the skin patch buprenorphine, which is NorSpan. This is for a few reasons. It's an effective analgesic. It is applied once per week as a patch, which is convenient for patients and which provides relatively stable plasma levels of the drug over the week. And there is an impression that buprenorphine is less susceptible to tolerance and doses creeping up over time, which is a well-recognized problem with other opioid medications, such as morphine or fentanyl patch or Oxycontin. So a stable dose for a long period of time is a good thing for patients.
2: I think one thing to add that's really important is in the case of legacy patients who are on uh, moderate or high doses of opioids and the the evidence for treating chronic pain with opioids may be sparse but there is quite strong and emerging evidence that weaning patients or opioid dependent uh, through virtue of being addicted to pharmaceutical opioids weaning them off their opioid therapy may be harmful so this is a very Uh, important area, I think, at the moment where the overwhelming belief is we shouldn't be treating people with chronic pain with opioids, that we have to be very careful about how we then go about weaning patients off treatment. And that's quite a nuanced and complicated area.
0: Martin, would you mind walking us through what the options are currently for opioid replacement therapy for a patient with, say, a heroin misuse issue?
2: So we we have two different drugs that we can use in this context. So both methadone and buprenorphine are Uh, available to treat patients with opioid dependence. Uh, Methadone, we'll uh, leave for today and just talk about buprenorphine. Buprenorphine comes in a variety of different forms. So as has been mentioned by Harry, uh, it comes as a tablet, Subutex tablets, uh, and it comes as an oral film called Suboxone film, where it's mixed with Naloxone. And it's also now available in a long-acting injectable form, and there are two different products available. One is called Sublicade, which comes in two doses, 300 and 100 milligrams, uh, which are given monthly, subcutaneously. And then another product called Buvidal, which comes in different weekly strengths and different monthly strengths. And that again is a subcutaneous injection. These two products are quite different, uh, but are very helpful in increasing the a variety of treatments available to patients, so increasing patient choice and also decreasing some of the inconveniences uh, that result from being placed on a, a monitored treatment such as uh, methadone or buprenorphine uh, film.
0: Martin, are there particular advantages or disadvantages of buprenorphine in opioid replacement therapy when compared to a a drug such as methadone?
2: So I think it's important to state that methadone has a very strong uh, evidence for efficacy and safety, uh, but there are some problems with its use. And buprenorphine is a much easier drug to use and it's more uh, patient acceptable often and it's easier for patients to take. Because methadone is so toxic, patients really need to be supervised either on a daily basis or at least two or three times a week. So dosing is quite difficult and problematic for them. And the induction onto methadone does take some time and is the period of highest risk for patients uh, when they're transferring from other opioids onto methadone. Buprenorphine, uh, the induction process is actually very rapid. And whilst there is the risk of precipitating withdrawal, if it's done too precipitously, it's quite possible to stabilize people on buprenorphine within two or three days. There are other advantages in terms of safety, so obviously is a pure mu agonist, and a very potent one does interact with uh, some other sedatives in, in problematic ways, and does prolong the QT interval, as you'd be aware. Buprenorphine is probably safer. Uh, it does have a sealing effect in the main, and it is, whilst it is a, a, a mu opioid uh, agonist, it is less potent than uh, methadone, and so it's less likely to cause problematic sedation, although it may still do so. It can prolong the QT interval, but is, along with morphine, probably uh, one of the two safest opioids to use in that context. So, for patients with concerns about QTC prolongation, uh, buprenorphine is a drug we would use, uh, as well as using morphine.
0: Man, could you explain further some of the newer treatments of the subcut uh, depot buprenorphine options?
2: So We're seeing increasing numbers of patients on this treatment now, so these treatments have been available in Australia for a couple of years and there is mounting uh, interest in using these long-acting preparations because they increase the uh, patient independence from the dosing point. They allow for monthly treatment which allows patients to uh, get on with their lives outside of focusing on their treatment and is often preferable for the patient to not have to go to a pharmacy on a regular basis. It also, at a practical level during the pandemic, allowed us to provide treatment uh, very simply by seeing patients once a month rather than having to, uh, for them to go to the pharmacy very often. So it is increasing to patient choice, which is really important. Uh, obviously, patients with opioid um, dependence only have access to a very small number of treatments and they are not always ideal. So the fact that patients can access a subcutaneous injection does actually increase their choice considerably, and it decreases the cost to the patient. So patients normally pay $5 a day for dosing with sublingual buprenorphine or with methadone. Very often, access to long-acting buprenorphine is free, uh, particularly if patients attend hospital-based or community clinics. uh, And so it's a a much more patient-acceptable treatment for many people.
0: Thanks for that. Our audience today includes anethidus and perioperative physicians. Do you have any suggestions for the acute pain management for, one, for a patient who is currently on a long-acting injectable buprenorphine, such as Sublocade or buvidel, having already been administered?
2: So this is a really important area, and I think um, it's going to be increasingly important as more and more patients shift from methadone and buprenorphine to the long-acting forms of buprenorphine. Given that the half-life of uh, buvidal can be up to 25 days and the half-life of sublocade, the other preparation can be up to 60 days. Clearly, uh, in high doses, these drugs are going to have a very significant impact on uh, pain control and pain management in this group of patients. It's important, I think, just to make the point really clear that in the case of buvidal, it is not possible once the drug has been injected subcutaneously for it to be removed In the case of sublocade, which is a a different preparation and forms a sort of semi-solid mass after injection, it can be removed within the first 14 days of being applied, but obviously that only removes one dose, and given that the half-life of the drug is so long, that if patients have had previous injections of sublocade, uh, you will still have the same issue with trying to overcome new receptor blockade. So as Harry's alluded to previously, we do need to be looking at alternative means of providing analgesia.
0: So would you be altering or, or timing elective surgery around when the last dose of the long acting injectable has been given? Is there any advice you can give about, about timing of particularly a painful procedure that the patient might need?
2: So Olivia, that's an excellent question. And I guess one of the important things to be mindful of here is not... Destabilizing patients who are stable. Obviously, some patients on treatment are not particularly stable, and so the risk may be less. But if patients have not been using opioids uh, illicitly and are very stable in treatment, the last thing that we would want to do, and the last thing they often want to do, is to run the risk of destabilizing their treatment. So, in those cases, we would probably encourage maintaining the treatment that is in place. There are some instances, depending on the nature of the surgery and what the post-operative analgesic requirements might be, that might mean that we do look at changing treatment and obviously swapping people to sublingual buprenorphine is an option. uh, And that can then be ceased if necessary, pure mu agonists and other treatments applied, and then the patient can be reinstated on their um, previous opioid agonist treatment later. But in general terms, in most cases, it's appropriate to maintain the opioid agonist therapies such as long-acting buprenorphine and use other modalities of treatment. It just depends really on the nature of the surgery and the sorts of things that might be encountered post-operatively.
1: Martin, can I, can I just clarify? So if someone is on a regular injectable buprenorphine schedule monthly, would you time the elective surgery to be, to, to be towards the end of the monthly cycle before the next dose is due?
2: So that's been suggested, but in reality, it shouldn't make any difference because, the, as I said, the half-life, particularly with sublocate, is so long that the, the aim of treatment, and once people have been on treatment for more than three or four monthly cycles, their plasma level of buprenorphine is going to be at such a level that the blockade is going to not change very much at all, in most cases.
0: So overall, it sounds like these patients are going to potentially have a difficult perioperative course for their pain management would that be a reason to maybe send them to a centre where they have access to acute pain specialists and addiction medicine specialists uh, rather than attempting to do that at an institution without those availability of resources?
2: Look, I think that's a really excellent question. I, I would say yes, ideally so, because uh, destabilising a patient uh, is such a critical thing uh, that for a lot of individuals, they are absolutely terrified of going back to Uh, a a sort of opioid-dependent lifestyle and often very grateful for treatment and what treatment has given them, which is freedom from injecting drugs. So I think it's a a really important point, and I think it should be a rationale for referring patients to tertiary centres, absolutely. And unfortunately, there is just as there's a shortage of pain management expertise uh, widely throughout Australia, there's an even greater shortage of addiction medicine expertise.
0: Thank you. Are there any suggestions that you could make for clinicians regarding discharge planning and prescriptions at the end of the preoperative period, particularly for patients who are on opioid replacement therapy?
2: Again, this is an excellent question. It's really important whenever transitions of care occur that good communication occurs. So I think this is the ideal time to be talking to patients about an opioid weaning plan, uh, to talking to prescribers and, and looking at SafeScript to see who's prescribing for the patient in the community, talking to the primary opioid replacement therapy prescriber and any other GPs involved in the care of the patient and also ensuring that any t- prescribing that is done is done in a staged manner so that individuals if they do need to take mu um, opioids or gabapentinoids or other um, analgesic agents that that's done in a safe way acknowledging that this is a high-risk patient population and we need to put in place strategies to minimize the potential for harm occurring.
0: Would you mind also touching on some of the harm minimization strategies that we might be able to incorporate into our practice such as the use of safe scripts uh, contacting DACA Uh, or also the use of
2: naloxone? Sure, so I think it's good practice to look at SafeScript whenever we're prescribing drugs of dependence to patients and certainly in hospital practice, whilst we're not mandated to do so, it's certainly good clinical practice to do so to give you more information than you might otherwise have. So that I think is is sensible. Uh, SafeScript is not perfect, but it does capture 98% or so of um, dispensing of um, prescribed medications. In addition to that, uh, we should always talk to patients about safety, how to use their medication appropriately, and also offer anyone on either high-dose oral um, morphine or buprenorphine or methadone or on moderate doses of those agents if they're also taking other sedative drugs such as benzodiazepines or pregabalin or gabapentinoids, we should offer them naloxone, which is available as a nasal spray. This is now widely available throughout uh, pharmacies in Australia, but when patients are leaving hospital, it's an ideal opportunity to be providing them with a free uh, prescription for this medication so they can actually take it and at least either administer it to somebody who has an overdose near them, or if they overdose accidentally, that a partner or person who's aware of of the um, presence of that medication, so people need to be informed to tell people around them that they stock it in their house, uh, to... Uh, treat them if they do actually have an accidental overdose.
0: Martin, could you please clarify the role of DACUS?
2: So DACUS is uh, the Drug and Alcohol Consultancy Advisory Service, which is a service run out of Eastern Health, and uh, a group of addiction medicine specialists and addiction psychiatrists provide 24 hours a day, 365 days a year advice to clinicians as to how to manage uh, opioid or other drug-related uh, issues. It's a telephone advisory service. Uh, we all work normal hours like uh, all of you. So we do try and respond to calls within one hour, but sometimes uh, the time to response may be a little bit more than that. We will always endeavor to get back to you in time in response to clinical questions. And I think it's uh, certainly a service that's worth using whenever you have a question around the management of a patient with a, a drug or alcohol use disorder, bearing in mind that uh, the Some of the people answering the call will have expertise in pain management, but we really restrict our um, responses to managing uh, issues to do with addiction, whether it's to do with alcohol use disorders or other drug use disorders.
0: Thank you very much for your time today. And I also want to thank our listeners for joining us.
2: Thank you, Olivia. Thank you.